Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Scott Edwards, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Daniel Vukovic, Associate Professor at Hong Kong University, about his new book, A Liberal China, The People's Republic of China as Ideological Challenge, which was published in 2018 through Palgrave. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Scott. Start off by saying congratulations. I think this is an extremely interesting book. Um, I think it's particularly important for its critiques of our kind of Western assumptions and contrary to a lot of books out there, I think, a lot of work. It kind of offers a really refreshing approach in the fact that it kind of offers us these challenges and way of thinking about things. Um, Because of that, I guess in some ways... I found it a challenging book at times in terms of forcing these reflections in myself and how I think about things. But I think that's what makes this book such a kind of rewarding read. And when you find when you get to that end point, it's like if you feel like you've done a lot for it. So thank you very much and uh, for speaking to me. And congr- Great, thank you. So I think um, just to start off, if it's okay, and for our listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, I guess our first port of call would be asking you if you could just offer a kind of overview of the main arguments you present in the book, um, a bit of a summary of your way of thinking and and how you came to this argument, and also how the, the chapters that you offer tie into it. So for, for the listeners... Um, there's some very good chapters on uh, the new left in, of thinking in China, uh, Hong Kong and the Umbrella Revolution and as well. So if I could ask you to kind of talk a bit about the main argument and how these different elements fit into that puzzle. That'd be okay, great. sure. Sure. Uh, I will try. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, it's a series of arguments, actually, in the in the separate chapters um, but I think it, it comes together with an attempt to uh, think through a very old question, actually, of kind of China's relationship to liberalism, right, politically and philosophically, um, but also um, the, the general assumption that, that China is off or wrong, political China, uh, because it's not liberal. And that you see increasingly, certainly in kind of like popular media, popular culture, but also in some kind of more political science work where it's it's either explicitly called illiberal or framed in that way, right? As if it's part of a tide of um, a kind of global illiberalism so that whether it's Eastern Europe or uh, North Korea or, or some other bad part of the axis, so to speak, um, China's part of some larger trend. And when I started thinking that, it, it um, thinking about that, kind of wondered, well, 
you know, a lot of what this begs is what does it mean to be liberal and what does it actually mean to be illiberal in the first place? And if you kind of look at it, uh, it's kind of etymology, at least in English, you see that liberal, illiberal arises as an insult coming from liberals during the, a kind of older familiar story of a kind of shift from a you know landed aristocracy and a feudal system to something more recognizably bourgeois, right? Um, that kind of old story there. So essentially it was just an insult, right? That you're not liberal. It kind of meant like vulgar, maybe a little bit uneducated, that kind of thing. So but basically from it from its very beginnings, the the question of liberalism and what used to be called way back then, illiberalism, was just as part of a kind of political fight, basically, between the kind of contending um, elite classes, really, um, in Europe and in England in particular, right? And which at least helped me begin to think back into the question of, well, what if we rephrase this as basically China is not liberal or it's even anti-liberal? <clears throat> just like the kind of ancient regimes were of, of the West. And it helped me think that, well, actually, you know, it is that, right? So you, you've had such a clear political turn after Mao, right? That kind of radical leftist rhetoric was always against um, kind of political liberalism and liberal as a, liberalism as a philosophy as well, right? And um, you see something older within that, even going before the Mao period, and then afterward when you get this kind of break into the, the kind of post-Mao, more kind of capitalistic um, China, the kind of consistent insistence on its own terms that it's not liberal, right? That it's its own thing. And I think we've kind of lost that in some ways, right? So um, in other words, you know, this for me, looking at this aspect of China's relationship to it, then had it dovetail with more kind of theoretical critiques and post-colonial studies, um, at least some forms of Western Marxism, that kind of thing, which are kind of critiques and histories, critical histories of liberalism, is essentially as a discourse of empire and really as something that's almost genetically connected to um, capitalism. Right? So um, that's where it kind of began. And more specifically, there was an essay some years ago by Elizabeth Perry, who's always worth reading, right? It's very stimulating and, and uh, excellent read always. On this question, I think it even had illiberal China in the title. And it, it was a nice rehearsing of the uh, kind of familiar argument that said, you know, China's got all this protest, right? And it's got a kind of public sphere and all this kind of contention. But ironically or paradoxically in her view, this only kind of subtends and underpins the state because it has this capacity to respond to it. So in a way, all that kind of what she, I guess, meant is like democratic or liberal protest only kind of shores up the state more, produces its stability, um, which I think was an interesting, it's an interesting argument. But for me, it got me also thinking, well, What's wrong with that, though, right? So if it's really having a certain positive effect, at least in some cases where the state does respond productively to this, then maybe there's something to 
this illiberal system that it has, right? Maybe it has a certain kind of effectiveness and 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 legitimacy um, stemming from this ability to respond, which in turn was also similar to arguments from her and Sebastian Human around the the guerrilla strategy or the the how to put it the like the invisible hand of Mao almost and the adaptability of the PRC model. Um, since 49 to do this, right? Which is definitely illiberal, right? In the sense of being not liberal or anti-liberal, very consciously and trying to do something else. So the, the PRC itself understands itself politically as a system, as an alternative or response to this thing of liberalism, right? So um, this is kind of where the, the first chapter begins. And I'm trying to think about think through what does it mean to think that China is actually illiberal? In what sense is it illiberal? Rather than assuming it's just this terrible thing and it just means authoritarianism and so forth, uh, what what else is to it, right? And where else can you see the kind of either explicit or implicit criticisms or challenges or alternatives to liberalism as a philosophy and as a politics um, going on in China, right? And of course, I'm also aware of and talk about this in various places in the book. China is also a liberal in, in a bad sense, right? In the sense of um, uh, it can just be repressive. It is repressive of dissent, at least anti-regime dissent, as if it's just on principle, right? So, and we know there can be um, obvious. I hate to say human rights abuses, but yeah, human rights abuses, political abuses, um, and of course, way too much exploitation of labor and so on and so forth. Okay. But um, I wanted to kind of run with this through um, a series of other analyses that seem to me to relate to the question of liberal or illiberal China. Um, so after the intro and trying to do a little genealogy of this and how I come to the term, uh, there's a chapter on the new left and its relationship to liberalism and, it, and its kind of um, critique of it, which, again, can either be explicit or just a kind of denial of it and, and attempts to develop kind of critical ways of seeing China, not just since the reform period, which they're generally critical of, um, the kind of exploitation um, and costs of globalization that have gone with that. Um, but also kind of returning to some of the complexities and, 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 and depth of the revolution, the legitimacy of Chinese socialism as opposed to liberalism. Um, and the other thing that interests me about them is how they can be seen to challenge kind of liberal universalism, that their politics have to be like this, or this is the truth about Maoism and the revolution or this is why reform is really good for China, those kind of things. So I, I do see them as involved either consciously or unconsciously or some combination of both as a response to kind of a liberal and kind of universalist historiography. Um, the next chapter gets into um, the kind of rise and fall and return of liberalism within China. And so this one looks at uh, kind of reading of a little screed from Mao in the 30s called Combat Liberalism, which you might be familiar with, some of the listeners and readers might be familiar with. And um, what it does is 
among its various ways of kind of typifying liberalism, it says that liberals or liberalism stand for an unprincipled peace in the face of like class struggle and exploitation and inequality and things like that, right? Um, and another way to look at that, particularly from the present perspective, is liberalism stands for a kind of depoliticization. And what it wants to do is remove political antagonism and kind of deny the, the foundational and important status of that in place of um, essentially development or the free market in more contemporary parlance. So Mao's essay, I think, can be read retrospectively and in context, for that matter, of the late 30s as a kind of debate within the party and what should be you know, is it politics in command or economy in command and those kind of things? So that, of course, relates to the post-Mao turn and Deng Xiaoping and things like that. And then seeing really this as a struggle over politicization or depoliticization through that kind of Maoist red trajectory. Um, and then contemporary liberalism is in China is, of course, different than this, but um, also goes towards the same kind of economism that I think Mao was objecting to. Um, as well. So you see the, the influence of like uh, Friedrich von Hayek, some of the and other kind of neoliberal thinkers and economists. So within Chinese liberals, right, or Chinese liberalism. And um, yeah, so I see that as a kind of ongoing tension still and a kind of unresolved relationship to um, liberalism and depoliticization and economism. Right. So it's another term that comes up there and uh, runs throughout the book, which for me just means the reduction of everything to the economy, the workings of the economy, that the economy, to some extent, has to be autonomous, at least from politics, if not from the state. Right. And that that basically does the work of depoliticizing the society. I mean, this is Mao's analysis, but it's also Carl Schmitt's. And I think it's a kind of Marxist view as well. Uh, and then, to move a little more quickly, I look at uh, two of the really big protest movements, really, of the last several years. The one up in Wukhan in Guangdong province, which was, has been referred to as the Wukhan Uprising, which began as a kind of almost too familiar uh, village protest over land seizures and thefts by local Communist Party officials. And this was a huge protest, actually, in a somewhat big village or small town. Um, but it was notable because it worked, at least initially. Right? The villagers basically shut down the streets and kind of took control of it. It was quite militant. Um, one of their early protest leaders had died in custody, which really triggered it as well. Right? The other thing that was remarkable about it was uh, that they were able to appeal to the foreign media, meaning really specifically Hong Kong media and then some other more English language media as well later on, uh, the villagers and the protesters. And they were basically really successful at triangulating both the, the, the domestic Chinese, want to call that local or national media, on the one hand by saying, you know, we're not against the party. We're doing all this. You know, we want the party to come in and fix us. They kind of fit that tradition of a kind of um, righteous resistance quite effectively by appealing to the, to the center. 
And also to the foreigner and Hong Kong media by saying, look, in effect, to paraphrase, we are not um, you, basically. We're not going to tell you what you want to hear. We, um, we're, this is not 1989. This is not Tiananmen. We're not looking to overthrow the party. And effectively saying this is not about freedom. This is about, yeah, democracy, our local democracy, and our, it's a social justice issue, most importantly. Right. So they kind of there was a refusal of a kind of universalist human rights, what I want to call a liberal rhetoric that you expect to see in the media, uh, foreign media in particular. And they were able to triangulate that. And I think as a result of this, because they were working in that righteous resistance mode, they were able to continue the protest. And actually, the officials who were responsible for those thefts were all jailed or removed from power. And then they went through a um, series of local elections. So when you think of it, it's like, wow, this here's your Chinese democracy, basically, right? Even in the conventional understandings of it as process and elections, because you have recall power, you have new elections. Right? And in fact, that initial wave of protesters, a few of them who were voted into office, like months, maybe about a year later, they in turn kind of came up on charges of uh, corruption and, and embezzlement, basically. And then there were new elections, and that basically the same pattern happened again, uh, which is interesting in a number of ways, right? So it doesn't necessarily end well because the, the elections in themselves didn't really solve anything. Right. The, the, the leaders who were brought in in two separate waves eventually were forced out. Right. And actually, uh, this is now three years, at least three years after that initial wave. There were more protests. People returned to the streets again. And this time they were just repressed and put down uh, kind of immediately and um, um resulted in big jail terms for the people protesting this time, which didn't happen before. So there's kind of a sad ending there, so to speak, right? Um, but on the other hand, um, this righteous resistance model, you can see it's still working in Wukong, right? At least some of the land was returned and some of the money was returned. Now, there's still disputes this is why the people came back three years later. Not all of it was back, that kind of stuff. But, but what I'm looking at, just trying to analyze, is just to see how that illiberal model works um, democratically or responsively, which in some sense it does. If you, if you leave aside the election and what's happening there, um, you see a state that's responding um, proactively to these problems, right? which the Chinese state is capable of doing just as it's capable of doing the reverse and just kind of immediately repressing it, right? Now, it would be fantastic if they just did the former and not the latter, um, but maybe that's a kind of uh, unrealistic expectation, so to speak. Um, so it's a kind of mixed result of that, but it, it seems to illustrate the, the, the effectiveness of this kind of illiberal democracy, if you want to put it that way, a liberal political system of on the one hand, as well as its limits. And the other thing I want to argue, and this relates to the Hong Kong analysis, uh, the umbrella protests as well, some said, is that you have to see this as the limits of the elections and what they can actually do, and a kind of the limits of a procedural notion of democracy, which is 
important insofar as it goes, but it's not that far that it goes in my analysis, right? It's just that now that's become synonymous with what democracy is. It's procedure, it's process. It's not livelihood, it's not economic democracy, it's not even social justice, right? And if you look at what's happening in Hong Kong and in Wuhan, and what can be done and what can be fixed, it's really not a question of um, how elections are done or even if there are elections in the, themselves, right? It's basically a question of the political economy, right? So Wuhan, all these things were, the, the land was stolen or taken or not paid for properly and that kind of stuff because there's such intense pressures on local officials to basically make profit and show all the good stuff that they're doing. And they're just dabbling basically in property speculation and land, right? So there's no more effective, more democratic, um, more just kind of mode of development in the countryside, right? So that's really a question of the political economy. If you completely commodify the land, then that's the limit, right? So if you get to then Hong Kong, um, to me, I mean, the umbrella protests were really a kind of the first the Occupy Central, which leads to the umbrella protests, and there's a whole kind of history and, and uh, analysis of it, analysis of it in that chapter. Well, instead of a liberal, illiberal kind of system, you have a liberal protest movement and a liberal political culture of Hong Kong, and you see how this can work and how it can be effective, um, but then also in this sense what its particular limits are, right? So to make a long story short on this chapter, um, I think that that insistence on suffrage, what they're calling suffrage, and the procedures and the, the legal processes that are supposed to take place according to the Hong Kong liberals' view of the basic law as opposed to the mainland view of the basic law, right? You see all this focus on that. And in some ways, that's really the problem because it's, it's this, again, a question of economy or political economy in Hong Kong. One reason why Hong Kong's so unhappy, I think, and why it's very difficult for many people, it has no economic base, right? Not only did its kind of working class jobs of manufacture leave like decades ago now, there's no alternative mode of development which has happened for various reasons, right? That's not the opposition fault, that's also the establishment's fault, that's also the mainland's fault because they're not actually taking livelihood and political economy seriously enough in Hong Kong. They're refusing to intervene into the property market. The whole city turns on these ex just astronomically high property values and, and standard of living, and nothing's ever done to kind of intervene at this particular level, right? So the procedural thing, um, to me, hits a wall around that again. And the protests in Hong Kong, interestingly, um, this actually happened before, and then the protests happened, and then there was a vote which nixed it. But basically, as a result of Hong Kong's disquiet around suffrage and voting, and um, which is to some extent well known, of course, even in the, the mainland, there was an alternative proposal to, to not give universal suffrage of one person, one vote, and direct nomination of the city's um, chief executive, which um, China's not going to do if that does not basically ban anti-regime 
more or less independence advocates from the ticket of the chief executive, right? Um, they did, however, offer a kind of modified system where you would expand the this kind of larger committee that um, works with liaison office, basically, to choose somebody to be the CE. And you would end up with an election. They would basically have two people who, would, again, they would be approved by this kind of vetting committee. But then those two people could go out in the city and kind of campaign against one another, presumably come up with some kind of differences between the two of them. Um, and then you vote on them. Everybody could vote straight up on them. But this was shot down in the local legislature, which some of us, as you could tell, myself included, think was a mistake because it would have been at least one step towards a more effective um, governance um, in Hong Kong, right? But I think it was refused because of the power of this kind of pan-democratic parties um, at the time. Um, and because it basically was illiberal. I mean, it wasn't this kind of liberal form that um, the protesters wanted and the pan-democratic parties wanted in particular. <laughs> and then the final chapter tries to tie together these threads um, in terms of um, redefining illiberalism in China and what we can maybe learn from it in terms of political theory and politics going forward. Um, and what I try to point to is that, you know, there could be both, both, both a potentially progressive illiberalism coming out of China, which falls quite far short of like a socialist or radical vision that at least Mao and the left used to want, that even the new left probably no doubt wants. Um, but that would still be um, instructive, particularly in terms of the state, because one thing that defines Chinese liberalism as used to define social democratic politics and much critical theory was essentially a pro-state position that the state is basically the terrain of politics and that it's a kind of necessary thing, right? It's, it's, you can call it a necessary poison or something like that, but you have to have a state, right? And that the social contract has to turn on the state and the state's performance is basically where the action is, so to speak, right? So China's commitment to that um, has been quite strong on the one hand, whereas so many other regimes around the world, so many other kind of intellectual streams from like French post-structuralism to kind of anarchist thinking or what have you, is very anti-state. The state is just terrible, right? Um, and which speaks to what's happened to the state, particularly in Western countries, <clears throat> which has been degraded and downsized and all those kinds of things. So I think if there is any hope politically that would come from studying China, it would be around this question of the state, not to you know, copy the Chinese state, Right. And the Chinese state itself is not as strong or as and as sound a shape as it should be. Right. Um, but yeah, but that basically that that's at least one thing that I think is um, illuminating, challenging about China. Uh, of course, the flip side of this is that it can also lead to a kind of reactionary uh, illiberal ism in China as well, where 
the state is just simply repressive, right? Um, and which unfortunately actually seems to be the more dominant trend in the last year or so as well. But uh, at any rate, the state is, I think, basically that important. And um, that's what needs to be fought over and returned to and, and, and essentially taken over, right? And that that's going to have to actually work against liberalism, particularly kind of this liberal economism, which wants to turn everything over to the economy, right? So anyway, that's least one place where I've ended up here. Maybe I've gone on quite quite long enough for this. No, that's that's great. Thank you. I think it uh, just very much helps ground the the listeners into the discussion and uh, gives a really nice overview. Um, I guess for the next question, um, it's a bit more about the the process of the ideas and how you came to these. Like, did did you feel that? Because to me, it seemed that um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be familiar with your previous book, The China and Orientalism. Um, and it seemed there's a there's a very nice kind of endpoint start point like connection between these two books. So so whilst you were working, did these ideas kind of start to formulate whilst you're working on China and Orientalism? Did you did you have this in mind as being the the next stage? Because they, they I think they come together in such a coherent way. Um, so it kind of reads like they've. Yeah, I think I mean. I didn't talk about liberalism or illiberalism that much or much at all in that particular book, but that certainly would have been another way of describing the particular form um, and even content of that new Orientalism that I was trying to kind of decipher through looking at China, right? So the argument there was that this Orientalism turns on China essentially becoming the same as the U.S. normative West, which in the immediate decade or decade and a half after Mao, even going to the early 70s, seemed to be the path that China was on, right? So all of a sudden, China was good again, right? Even a little bit with the Nixon detente, things like that, uh, but particularly after Mao, because it seemed to be it was dumping the Maoism and communism. It was kind of going big on markets and economic freedom, whatever that means, um, and openness and all the exchanges and migration. flow. You know, essentially a kind of ending of the Cold War, so to speak. That seemed that China was becoming the same leading up to really the 80s in which there was so much in China, as I'm sure you know and listeners know, the, the kind of Occidental fevers and cultural fevers, as they were called, and and a, and a kind of really embracing of the West and to some extent of liberalism. And so, like, you know, Hayek starts getting translated, I think, in the late 80s and is back already in the 90s and things like that, right? Um, so uh, Tiananmen or the, the crushing of Tiananmen uh, kind of crushes this dream in some ways, although it was still understood, I think, by... China studies and the West in general, and for me, kind of popular intellectual political culture and China studies are virtually synonymous, but there's there's very little break really overall between the two of them. Um, that you know that basically it should become the same of us as us and is becoming the same of us. It's just still struggling with this despotic kind of communist party form. 
right? Which is essentially a kind of liberal attitude. So that led to the book, um, the, the last book, and that I wanted to look at the post Tiananmen world as a response from within China to this, right? So that it kind of began with me with the new left. Um, so it's knowing some of those folks, going to conferences or workshops with them or talking to them or just trying to read them um, as best as I can and that kind of thing. Uh, seeing them, you know, it's certainly not about Maoism quite anymore, revolution, but a kind of response to liberalism as a historiography and as a kind of form of economy and things like that, that started happening as well after Tiananmen or really after the 90s and the kind of redoubling of all that kind of capitalist turn with Deng Xiaoping um, that led to that, right? Um, I did not go to Wuhan actually at the time. Um, I was watching it and kind of observing it. Um, and then by the time I got more interested, it wouldn't have been quite as feasible for me to go up there to find anybody to talk to. Uh, of course, working at Hong Kong is kind of nice. Working in Hong Kong, if you start writing about Hong Kong, is nice because you're already in the field, basically. So it's not a problem to um, go down to the Occupy sites uh, when they were happening over those two months. And yeah. Right. So for me, it's been absolutely essential to have some form of dialogue with peers, intellectuals, other academics up in China, because that's to me this this kind of um, key link in that you don't always see it. Right. And that you don't always see this in other aspects of China studies. Right. And it's always like the same couple names. Maybe they come from China or something like that. Or it's it, China's academy and intellectuals aren't really consulted, right? But the only often, I hate to say, I mean, it's the intellectuals in Hong Kong who stand for the ones in China or the Chinese intellectuals in the United States who stand for China in some ways, right? But the academy and the intellectual scene in China in the mainland is really quite huge, right? So, and it kind of operates on its own terms. I talk about this a little bit in the introduction that um, that early embrace of uh, the 80s, during the 80s of like the Western Academy and all the Western scholars and so on and so forth has really, it hasn't gone out the window, but it's basically been corrected, I think. And so you have a kind of development of the Chinese Academy and Chinese views of its own history and of the world that you can access to if you go there. And if you're in Hong Kong, it's a great thing because it's even easier access to that. So that also really informed this book as well. Um, yeah, I guess to talk about the new left a bit, I, I found, um, I, I really enjoyed the chapter on the new left. It was something that, um, and again, I guess this was one of the aims of the book is something that I wasn't so aware of. Um, I wasn't aware of this kind of um, academic discourse, I guess, that emerged and stuff. So I found it really great for that. 
uh, especially like the discussions around is it Wang Zheng's gender neutrality um, and the kind of cultural revolution aspect. Yeah, it's Sun Xian's work on the Great Leap Forward and the kind of problems around estimating uh, casualties of the famine and the kind of outcome of that. I was wondering, though, um, in terms of this this new left discourse, um, I guess a couple of points I'd like to ask about a bit more is the but the these kind of strands of um, like uh, academic kind of exploration, I guess, and analysis, they they seem quite disparate. So is is there is there a lot of kind of cohesion around this discourse? Is there a lot of kind of self identification from academics as being part of this um, new left movement and also um in the book as well you discuss quite a lot about the party's attempts at kind of depoliticizing china uh, this move towards like economism due to kind of importance that ideas have for the party and, the, and china itself so uh, like how how, how is this new left kind of discourse and movement being received in china as well is is it having much of an impact within china itself or because of the kind of depoliticization is it still kind of struggling in its emergence i guess in that discourse? yeah well those are really good questions i think around the cohesiveness of it i think initially it was more cohesive because there was basically a clear fight between the liberals and the new left and actually, the phrase new left comes from um, some liberal intellectuals who were uh, uh, criticizing or, or stigmatizing, basically, uh, Beijing intellectuals in particular, I think like Wang Kui, but others, for being new left. And that, of course, it was a bad thing to be new left, right? To be left is terrible because look at all the horrors of leftism in, in China and Maoism, how these people, you know, it's like a curse word. Um, but then it kind of sticks, and others were fine with being called New Left for a while. Um, but it's a really, it is a diverse group. So I wouldn't, it's not like a coherent movement. I wouldn't say it even has like a particular, you know, like a leader or a particular organization or whatever. But there is a body of people that I think we basically unified by a stance which is critical of the reforms it obliquely, but querying them for maybe having gone too far. And that for, and that has a kind of um, respect analytically for the kind of socialist past, right? So they want, they're not going to demonize Maoism or the socialist period, even though the intellectuals or the academics really, uh, they don't particularly romanticize it either in my experience. Um, they often are the ones who kind of live through it. Um, or grew up in it, that kind of thing. But it's really quite diverse, and so at the same time. Um, so it's not really cohesive. I wish I knew even better what's going on now in the last couple of years uh, with it. I know that this goes back to the kind of regressive or reactionary kind of illiberalism, um, and particularly the kind of way too strong policing of speech um, under Xi Jinping on the campuses and so on. So I think it's had a somewhat chilling effect, particularly at the level of like self-censorship. I know intellectuals who have been hesitant to publish their books 
or put them out there just because they sound too political. I'm talking like even in English, right? The translations of their scholarship and that kind of stuff, where they're hesitating to do that and they're kind of waiting for things to cool off. Um, so that's bad. But um, I hope it changes soon, basically. It seems like the response has been to just double down on depoliticizing um, in many ways, particularly on the campuses and things. So you just aren't supposed to talk about politics, basically. Uh, one of the things I enjoyed as well is um, you, you discuss at one point in the book um, about this exchange at a conference that had kind of been reported as being um, a bit heated, uh, like a strong debate. And you're saying like, totally, you you were there. It's kind of like overstated and stuff. But I guess one of the things um, I'd be interested in hearing more about, I'm sure listeners would be as well. I would hope is how how do you find how have you found like you, you mentioned a bit earlier about your work and stuff. But how do you find like access in China and working in China? Like, do you find that you, you are able to have a debate like when you're when you're at these conferences? Do you find you're able to um, engage fully as you'd like to? Because I guess one of the kind of, as you're saying, one of the trends at the moment, uh, things like English journals being uh, like self-censored, essentially, I think, like responding to requests. I think, is it China Quarter like responded to requests to um, not give access to some, some of its articles in China and things like that. So logistically, have you found it relatively okay working on this have you found like access relatively easy or is it something that you found quite well i guess i might put it this way i mean so to go back to what i was saying i mean the the kind of self-censorship and kind of de facto kind of policing is happening so that doesn't really bode well on one hand for like new left or liberals for that matter um but on the other hand the stuff has also been institutionalized right so a lot of these leading new left or for that matter, liberal intellectuals are professors. They have jobs. They actually also do all kinds of teaching and other kinds of writing and stuff like that too. So those folks haven't gone anywhere, right? They just got to kind of watch it or put another way. I've been to some really terrific workshops in the past uh, couple of years and talks and things like that, good exchanges, but nothing like specifically like a new left conference or or very kind of overtly political workshop, which you used to be able to have. Now they might still be happening, but I'm 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 not. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not invited. I don't know. Uh, but yeah. So I think though, you know, China is just very complicated. So last spring I went to a conference on Orientalism and area studies. Actually, I have to organize some of the papers. But a friend of mine up in uh, Shanghai University, Togru. Keskin put it together with colleagues there. And it was an amazing uh, thing, actually. I mean, I could not do this, I don't think, in the States or almost anywhere else I could think of. But it's a kind of uh, a conference on Orientalism and area studies and Latin American studies and Middle Eastern studies and, and around the critique of these disciplines in terms of like the politics of knowledge and Edward Said's work in particular. So I'm meeting scholars from Palestine who live and work on the West Bank, right? Scholars from Egypt, scholars from Pakistan, a couple from Taiwan. It's true there were not too many from China, but there were some um, working on these issues. 
And the exchanges were great. And it was as political as you could be, actually. I mean, it's an academic conference. Um, so I think that there's still space for that. We, we can also overstate the amount of control that the party has or even wants to have. You know, we can easily overstate it. So that's the good news, I suppose. Uh, kind of related, if it's okay, I, I won't focus on this too much, but just... Uh... It kind of came up as I found really interested. Is um in the book as well, one of the things I really enjoyed is it seems like there's a real push to kind of recognise like like normal people's agency and like normal people's self understanding in China. Like I think the assumption is uh I guess what you're challenging is in the West is this assumption that people on the ground don't have aren't given this kind of amount of agency. You mentioned uh, in particular, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, sorry, but is it Nan- Nanjikan? The, um, you talk about this village and... But you say, like, it's easy to mark. Actually, like, there's 12,000 residents. They're real people. They have their own kind of understandings. I was wondering, um, so did this kind of focus come about from interactions with people on the ground? Like, was it something that... Um, you felt particularly, I guess, like impassioned by like hearing about pe- like hearing people's kind of um, agency compared to the lack of agency they've been attributed to, or is it like how did that come about as a kind of point of emphasis? That is part of it. I mean, I think there's two parts of it. One is going to the places or talking to the people or observing, right? And sometimes you don't even have to necessarily have to be there to observe it. Um, with media and things. I mean, so if you see like, I don't know, Chinese protests against the U S or something like that, or, um, you can kind of see enough of this stuff to kind of realize, well, wait a minute, these people have their own understanding of particular things, right. Um, of their own society or of kind of global issues. And it might be at odds with us, but rather than demonize it, let's kind of pause on it. If, if you're beginning from the assumption that, like I do that universals are something to be very cautious of, right? From that. So partly that observation and conversation, but also it comes from kind of, I guess, suppose reading anthropology and, and, and thinking of like the area studies has no sense that it's kind of caught up in an anthropological enterprise in some ways, like of a study of the other. Right. And so like, you know, one of the things you could learn from anthropology, I'm not an anthropologist, but one of the things you can learn from it is that you have to be conscious of how you write and frame the other and how you talk about them. And you have to look at the self-understanding of these other people, right? And this other place and how they see it, right? And if you begin to write and interpret and then effectively kind of legislate how these people should be without acknowledging their self-understanding, then you're doing, you're basically doing colonial or at least very arrogant uh, anthropology or, or writing, so to speak. So it comes from both of those kinds of things. That's great. Thank you. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I guess with everything going on um, at the moment, if we kind of move on to uh, like the, I, I say case studies, I'm not, I'm not sure they, they come across as like explicitly case studies because they, they both contribute to the discussion so much. But um as you were saying earlier, but the discussions around Hong Kong and Wukan. And as you mentioned, the, the first that you look at is this um, umbrella 
what's been termed revolution in Hong Kong, and argued the clash kind of revealed this kind of uh, mainland liberalism on the one hand, but also the limits of liberalism in Hong Kong because of the kind of problems it's facing. Um, and you mentioned, I think, there's there's two requirements in t- order to kind of overcome the impasse which has um, emerged. One, one is the exceptionalism and the second is like this kind of political challenge to mainland's drive to depoliticize society, I think you say. I was just wondering if um, we could reflect on this argument of Hong Kong and also the kind of uh, recent protests. Um, so I imagine our listeners would be interested in um, the scale of what was occurring there. And I was wondering if you see any sort of, whether you see that as being a continuation of the more kind of problematic aspect or whether there's been any recent changes in the, the, the protests that happened recently? Because to me, it seems like a lot of the similarities are there, especially the ones which you're critical of. So having like the kind of functional goal of um, just wanting to overcome the extradition treaty rather than um, kind of more systemic changes. Uh, and it seems to be like quite a fractured movement, still like a very youthful, uh, limited impact and stuff. So do you think this is a continuing sign of Hong Kong kind of falling short of being political? as you argued, the kind of umbrella revolution was? How would this fit into your work, do you think? If- oh, right, right. I almost forgot that part. Yeah, I actually like that part of, <laughs> if I can put it that way, of the umbrella stuff, uh, the analysis there. I think I argued that it wasn't, it stopped being political at a particular point because it began haggling over the issue, if I can put it that way, protesting over the issue of how the, the chief executive should be elected, and they just want universal suffrage. Okay, um, and it was very clear that's what the debate was. And they said the protesters, at any rate, we don't want this reform package. We want this straight up direct nomination, and everybody votes. Which actually, to be honest, would have been abandoning much of the basic law or much of the writing of the basic law. Which also kind of promises moving towards universal suffrage but then puts all these conditions on it. So it's a mess of the document. That's a separate discussion. Um, But I said it kind of stopped being political when it became clear that this is what the demand was and the response from the CE, who couldn't do it anyway, who couldn't legislate it, bring it into existence, and the response from the Hong Kong government and the mainland government was silence or no, basically, right? Um, But then people kept going to the streets and the protests, particularly the students, the kind of occupy thing. Um, and it just became not political in my analysis because there was no specific demand, right? It wasn't about the demands. It was about saying something. It was about being there and maybe, you know, kind of social imaginaries place, people participating. It's being all, all very interesting and great and significant in its own way, but I wouldn't necessarily call it political just as I wouldn't, really call the Occupy Wall Street some of its stuff as political either, okay? Because it's not really about the state or making demands and that kind of thing. Anyway, so that was the analysis there on that. Um, Interestingly, the extradition movement one, much more successful, I suppose, if that's the right way to put it, because there you also, it's something that's much more specific, saying we don't want this law, right? We, We don't want this law. This law is a bad idea. I don't want it. 
right? Even without necessarily reading it, paying much attention to it, um, we don't want it because you're kind of ramming it down our throats and to saying this to the CE and um, kind of forcing it on us and we don't want it. So it gave them something very specific to struggle over, right? So that would be one difference. And it's something within their capacity as protesters to effect, right? They did basically shelve the bill. I, maybe it'll come back at some point in a couple of years, but I think it's pretty much dead in the water, right? Um, yeah. So there's a kind of difference there in some ways. Uh, now, the other thing, though, that I think there's a, there's a resonance there between the two uh, protests is that uh, at some level, it's not even about the specifics of the matter at hand, the CE election or the extradition law, but it's a way of kind of performing, I don't mean this pejoratively necessarily, performing or establishing your identity, right? And, and saying something more general. And in the case of this last one, it's, it's really clear they're saying, look, we don't want to be part of mainland China basically, right? This is not something that we're really interested in, basically, right? Um, it's like saying a great big no across the border, right? And um, I think that that's a very clear message, actually. Now, it doesn't speak to everybody in Hong Kong, but I'm thinking it certainly speaks to that from the protesters and something close to a majority, if not a clear majority of, of Hong Kongers who kind of feel that way. So in other words, what, the, what that struggle is about and which came up in the Occupy movement, um, but much more strongly since, is the kind of rhetoric and demands for autonomy, which, which is supposed to be promised in the basic law, right? No changes for 50 years. Now, actually, this makes no sense whatsoever because the basic law also talks about of course, the sovereignty of the mainland, um, the, the handover was predicated upon you know, a certain quota of like thousands of immigrants every year coming from mainland China. You've got a kind of obvious capitalist, capitalistic or economistic um, integration of the two places, which is absolutely going to challenge its autonomy. It does change it. Anyway, but that, that clamoring and desire for autonomy has only become stronger in the years since Occupy in, what, 2014. And um, I think that's what that struggle is about now. And in fact, uh, it's getting very interesting as a kind of um, de facto independence movement, honestly. I mean, for someone like me who kind of starts as a post-colonial scholar, uh, and still am, and still teach it, things like that, uh, getting more and more into kind of politics, political studies. But um, it really starts to resonate with a kind of anti-colonial or decolonial movement, right? Because they, they, they don't say they're for independence. Some people do now, right? Um, but the real issue is that the demand for autonomy is basically a demand for independence in everything but name. Right. So that relationship between autonomy and independence is something that needs kind of analyzed and interrogated and figured out. And it's interesting because it's clear no one would say they're really for independence. 
maybe they want it, but they either are afraid to say it, self-censorship again, or pressure, you're not supposed to talk about that stuff, but because they know quite practically and realistically speaking, it's completely impossible, right? Um, so it's a kind of interesting overlap that that's also what Occupy seem to, to want in some ways. It's also kind of an autonomy movement saying, we want our own CE, we want it elected our own way, you sort of kind of promised it, that's what we want. But they're not gonna get that. But in the aftermath, it has not abated that desire for kind of autonomy. So um, I think you can look forward to seeing more of these issues in the future. But um, I'm not, I could not say that I think this is necessarily a, a clear victory because I'm not sure who the autonomy benefits necessarily. Even within Hong Kong, I'm not talking about the mainland, right? Hong Kong is not that important other than financially, which is important as opposed to it for the mainland. But it's important for Hong Kong and for Hong Kong people. So the question is, you know, who benefits from that autonomy and the clamoring for it and the desire for it? Um, and why do you want it? So I'm hoping that these questions will be debated and, and kind of discussed out and discussed in the future. Because I don't think the autonomy is actually possible. But it depends, on the other hand, what we mean by autonomy. Political autonomy, I don't know. Social autonomy, maybe. Um, economic autonomy is already gone, unfortunately, for better or worse. Um, yeah, so it definitely resonates with the 2014. Um, and it's an interesting place to be, actually, right now, Hong Kong. Yeah, I found it very interesting in terms of um, because what whilst I was reading the book and uh, kind of preparing for this uh, on the news in the background, it was all kind of wall to wall coverage about Hong Kong. So it very much re resonated when you're discussing about how Hong Kong's importance in the West is kind of has a kind of symbolic importance, right? Where it's 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 just publicized so much it kind of really resonated at the time because on the one hand i'm looking at my screen reading on the other hand you have the uh, the tv going as well so it's, <laughs> it's a really interesting discussion thank you um okay i guess um kind of one last substantive question then one uh, kind of roundup question i guess in in the final section you um you introduced this idea of progressive liberalism um I think this is really important, right? Because I think one thing it's important to note to the listeners as well is is this book doesn't necessarily just contribute to our understanding of China, but it also kind of raises light on the crisis of liberalism, the kind of problems that liberalism is facing as well. Um, so I was wondering how you see this challenge kind of evolving in light of this um Kind of around, and whether you could expand a bit on your idea of progressive liberalism and the the, the challenge in future to our kind of uh, liberalism itself. Sorry, a bit of a big question, maybe, but uh. no, it's a good one. No, thanks for that one, and thanks. You know, what I was trying to do was to to move the book from just the question of China and how we interpret it, which is a post-colonial question, so to speak, and what I was concerned with differently in the first book. But to this question of kind of global political conjuncture, if I can use that phrase, right? The global conjuncture. Sounds like Perry Anderson, the kind of Gramscian language, but I like it. Um, 
and how do we understand it? China's place in it and the world and things like that. And progressive illiberalism, well, I wish I could call it like a socialism, a return to socialism in China, but I don't think it's quite at that point yet, although it's not totally divorced from that either. So I really want to resist notions that China's not socialist or it's, again, because it's not, but it can depends on what we mean by socialism. So then maybe it is. Does it fit Western socialism? No. Does it fit social democracy? Not quite. But it could have its own logic. or could, It certainly sees itself that officially and the intellectual, its own kind of official discourse, sees itself as socialist. Right? So that's kind of interesting. Um, in other words, it sees itself as a kind of alternative to liberalism in that way as well. But I guess I kind of call it progressive liberalism instead. Um, to me, it's the question of the state and returning the, the something that the new left talks about, which is state capacity. The state has to have a certain power or ability, a capacity to do certain things, to take care of the people. It's kind of social contract 101 things in some way, 101 theory in some way. There's still a strong commitment to that, that, that that's the legitimacy of the party state and of its system in many ways comes from that. They don't hide from the fact that they're a big, powerful state or that they claim to be. Actually, they should be even stronger. Right. Um, yeah, I like that, basically. And I, I think that that's a general political truth, as I guess I've already kind of um, stated. So that's that. Um, the other thing is the organizational capacity of the one-party state. I'm not trying to sell the West or even China necessarily on the absolute necessity to have a one-party system. But one of the advantages of that one-party system, and which any state should have, is this kind of organizational capacity, right? It goes with its state capacity power to do things and tackle things. I mean, China's been able to um, address its environmental catastrophes pretty not entirely, but a lot of it of its own making. I will be the first to say that. But it's been able to address that mistake, right, to some extent at any rate, and I hope it will do even more, because of its state capacity. The United States can't do this. Right. So it's potentially there, I think. Right. I think that the, the threat to a kind of progressive anti or non-liberalism isn't just the repression and kind of xenophobia and things like that, because actually those are equally endemic to liberalism. Right. Which is based in kind of exclusion and hierarchy and boundaries and things like that, too. That's hardly a problem of of Chinese statism or something like that. Um, I think it's the economism, right? So China's mode of development has been kind of status in the sense that the state's been involved with planning and directing the kind of deployment of capital and the use of multinational capital and things like that far more effectively than other kind of former third world countries. Okay. But it's been powerfully committed to the economy or productive forces, if you want to put it that way, um, solving all the problems. Well, we'll just keep growing. We're going to grow out of all of our problems now. We'll keep exporting. We'll keep doing this, you know, 
everybody's the rising tide will lift all the boats. Inequality is not that big a deal if everybody's getting better off, blah, blah. This kind of thing is familiar to us. Well, I think it's reached the limits of that or it's realizing the limits of that. <clears throat> so I'm hoping that the so-called guerrilla strategy of the state, if you want to put it that way, um, will still obtain and still work and that it will realize it needs to move its system, its economy towards a more kind of redistributive, even kind of social democratic mode of operation, right? Um, it has a better capacity or chance of doing that because it has a certain state capacity, organizational capacity, and because it is a one-party system, it doesn't have any challenges, basically. It has a better chance of doing that, I think, than the U.S., for example. I mean, if you look at what's happened to the so-called liberal powers, you've got Trumpism, you've got Brexit, you've got refusal of migrants and refugees and, and these kinds of things. So where states are also in trouble, probably even in more trouble. And they're the ones committed to, everybody in power that is, right? They're the ones committed to keeping the state small, right? You, you will not find, Xi Jinping can say a lot of things, but he's not gonna say the era of big government is over, <laughs> right? The Clintonism, he's not gonna say that, right? And he's, you know, so I'm hopeful, I'm, not, I'm kind of, trying hard, basically, to, to find some sources of hope politically. Um, but I'm hopeful that there's something there in that, in the question of the state in China, um, that it can be used progressively. So in other words, basically a progressive critique of, of uh, liberalism. That was great. Thank you very much. I guess just finally to kind of round everything up, as I was saying earlier, there's a nice kind of coherency between um, China or Orientalism and the current book, um, China Liberalism, Liberal China. Um, so I was wondering, for, for you, like, what, what's next? Do you, do you have a, ne a next stage in this kind of project? Have you got any ideas on how you're going to develop this? Is it like further? Or, yeah, I guess so. So what's next for you, research-wise? Well, I'm, uh, this is both easy, this is both very easy and very difficult sitting here in Hong Kong and trying to write about Hong Kong. It's, it's all around me, but I can't be like a you know, TV journalist or something like that. So uh, it's hard to get a bead on things as they happen around you. But I'm interested in pursuing more, maybe just doing a somewhat shorter book on Hong Kong. Um, I'll see where it takes me, because I've been here now 13 years, and I'm thinking more and more about it and reading more and trying to learn more about it. Um, but uh, I want to have a project tentatively entitled After Autonomy. And we'll look at basically Hong Kong and China together and this kind of particular relationship. To the relationship between them and what that tells us about the rest of the world now, too. So, I mean, the autonomy, Hong Kong's democracy movement has become basically an autonomy movement because the full direct democracy electing the CE is, they're not saying that, but it's pretty much off the table, right? Um, and impractical. But there's still a really strong autonomy movement. And so to me, it's a really interesting question um, related to post-colonial theory. If you look at the, 
the decolonizations, not the communist ones, the really left-wing ones, but the other ones like India and so on, were in some ways really all about autonomy, right? Two, right, getting rid of the colonizers, partly to have your own autonomous nation. And yet so much work in post-colonial theory has talked about how that never happened and maybe couldn't happen and so on. Um, but in Hong Kong, you see it powerfully reactivated or activated for the first time um, for itself, kind of clamoring for autonomy and separation, and I'm even going to call it independence, um, which raises interesting questions. One, is it actually really possible? And if it's not possible, what do you make of that, right? What can you still learn from it? Um, and is autonomy an interesting or valuable or worthwhile ideal and value anymore, right? Not just for Hong Kong, but for the whole world, right? So um, is it even possible on the one hand, given the, the kind of shrinking of the globe, so to speak, with globalization and kind of economic integration so that crises in the US affect Hong Kong, crisis in China affects Africa, so on and so forth. Um, on the one hand, um, and then, you know, environmental catastrophes looming, these kind of things, which I don't know, it seems to me that might contradict um, the value we have previously held on autonomy and so much of liberalism, even some forms of Marxism have been about individual autonomy, <clears throat> individual freedom, your distance from other people. Your, your kind of a priori nature to society and all those kinds of things. All that's predicated on autonomy in some way. And I think that that's really being called into question now. So it becomes, are we to understand this as a bad thing or as a threat, or is there some kind of potentiality to that that might be worth thinking through? So I think that Hong Kong's movement after 97 here in these past decade and coming, coming ones um, can be very interesting for us kind of politically to think about this question of autonomy and globalization. That sounds great. I look, I look forward to reading the outcomes of that one as well. <laughs> so, okay. I guess we'll round up there then, if that's okay, unless you have anything else you'd like to say whilst you're here. No, I just want to say thanks so much for uh, doing this interview. Yeah. And I know it's earlier, or was earlier. No, okay. Yeah. That's great. I'm glad you read the book. Well, thank you very much for your time. And um, yeah, hopefully, I look forward to the next project. Thank you, Dan. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you, Scott.